0: Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello and a very warm welcome to another edition of Tall Poppies, the podcast. I'm Brendan O'Shea. It's very nice to have you with me. First up today, a big thank you for your many emails these last weeks. Your response to the last two podcasts featuring the life and music of Alma Moody has been wonderful. For those of you who might not yet have heard the programmes, Alma Moody was one of Australia's greatest musical exports. You'll find those podcasts and many more at tall-poppies.com or wherever you hear your podcasts. But today's program puts poetry and music set a
1: stage. When you treat a fragment as a complete text, everything will be fine until the hypothetically definitive ending. Then a dog barks and the automated gate slides open. What happens now? There is criticism which can question everything bar the competence of the author, and there is criticism which solely functions to question the competence of the author. But please don't use the spare tyre, because then I wouldn't have a spare tyre.
0: That's Matt McDonald reading The Mathematical Principle of Mercy by Luke Kennard. The poem appeared in the third edition of Berlin Lit, an international online journal for new poetry in English. The publication is the brainchild of Matthew, who regular listeners will recognise as a guest from a previous episode of Tall Poppies. Matt is the principal double bass player with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra and professor at the Hochschule für Musik, Hans Eisler. But he's now followed what he describes as a personal obsession – and established the poetry journal BerlinLit.com.
1: When you read a poem, you're kind of really entering consciousness. Not someone's necessarily their thoughts, but just consciousness. This kind of strange, elusive thing that we also don't understand. And sometimes what you read in a poem you won't literally understand, but it's an insight into a mind. And there's something often very truthful about the complexity of it. Also joining me is poet Alice Miller, a graduate of
0: the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the International Institute of Modern Letters. Alice was born and grew up in New Zealand and is today resident in Berlin.
2: I suppose that we do live in a time that privileges the small unit, right, through social media. And poetry is that, but it's also the opposite of the traditional way we think about social media, which is that it's, it's very dense and complex often, so it rewards more time spent on it, that actually we do crave more depth and that poetry provides that.
0: Alice is the author of the novel More Miracle Than Bird and has published three collections of poetry entitled What Fire, Nowhere Nearer and The Limits. Several of Alice's poems appear in the first edition of berlinlit.com.
2: The picnic outside the window with select guests carries on long after the sun goes down. It carries into night, bleeds into morning, and trickles through days. One long with a sunset and crowds, another brief and pained. The picnic outside the window began on the first day of spring, so warm it was more like summer. In a city in Germany, we were all borrowing, and a woman said there was an ice cream truck parked at the back of the clock tower. And around that time, many brides showed up to walk up the castle steps and be photographed on that day of days. And although the brides would usually irritate us, at that stage, nothing was irritating. Everything irradiated, even after the sun had gone, sunk, burned out, the planet ruined The echo of laughter continued as we became mothers and grandmothers and great-great ancestors after the deathless apparatus was invented so we could look on as our children's children's children told jokes under glass and people laughed with age-old desperation at the residual ruins from the quieter now but still ongoing picnic outside the window.
0: The Picnic, written and read by Alice Miller. We'll have a chance to hear that poem again later in the programme. Well, I sat down with the two poets, Matthew MacDonald and Alice Miller, to chat about poetry and the curious relationship music shares with literature. Alice Miller and Matt McDonald, Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Very nice to have you both here. Those who know the podcast, of course, know you, Matt,
1: as a bass player. How did poetry come into your life? I was always interested in poetry as a child. And then when I took up bass, it kind of took a back seat. But until I took up bass, I was going to go and study literature at university and get rich being a poet I just kept up my interest in it and then every summer when I would stop playing bass I'd think maybe I'm going to pack it in with bass and write now and then when COVID hit and I wasn't performing I suddenly had lots and lots of time to read and write poetry actually so I did the bulk of my writing degree during COVID and really only finished it when orchestral life got going again And then that finished, and I kind of, I wasn't writing that much, but I really wanted to be involved in poetry in a deep way that didn't require me always making my own poems. One afternoon I just found myself checking out how to make a website, and then within a few days I'd weirdly done this thing, and then suddenly I advertised it, and then suddenly it was real and I, I really love it, yeah.
0: No, it's, it's incredible, and we, we'll get back to that in a moment and talk about that particular project. Alice, of course, you way in. You have a, quite a distinguished list of literary qualifications, but you actually were a musician before all of this. You were composing music, I believe.
2: I was, yeah, except I, of course, feel like a total fraud saying that among these proper musicians. Um, but yes, I was briefly at music school and doing that. But I found that actually when I was writing pieces, I would get really obsessed with what texts I would use for the pieces. So I'd write the music, but before I wrote the music, I would just, I would be looking through all of these things and I would be so worried about whether the text was actually the right text or whether maybe I should use something else. And sometimes I would juxtapose different texts together and then I realised, I mean, I was frankly in completely the wrong business.
0: So you found your way to writing through composition, in other words.
2: Well, not really. I mean, you always tell these stories, it sounds quite good like that. But no, I think, I mean, I was always very interested in in writing and I was studying literature and history at the same time as I was studying music. Um, But, yeah, I certainly realised that writing was the real obsession. Alice,
0: one of the, the really successful podcasts in the last 12 months or so has been a podcast about poetry, where there are 30 million people listening to this podcast. And I'm just wondering if you have any ideas why people are so incredibly keen to hear poetry in this day and age.
2: I suppose that we do live in a time that privileges the small unit, right, through social media. And poetry is that, but it's also the opposite of the Traditional way we think about social media, which is that it's very dense and complex often. So it rewards more time spent on it. You don't have to read a whole novel. I mean, I do notice that fewer and fewer people do read longer texts. So that would be one guess, I suppose, that, that the short text is deceptively easy to consume, but that also the complexity is rewarding. Um, that actually we do crave more depth and that poetry provides that. I think also there's a lot of play and there's a lot of humour.
0: What about the process of writing poems for you?
2: Yeah, I've been writing poems for so long now that I don't do what I used to do, which was very earnestly sit down at a desk and write poems, encouraged by many university programmes where... I thought that I would apply myself and write lots of poems. Uh, Now I don't really have the illusion that anybody particularly minds whether I write a poem or not. And so it happens much more rarely. And I can't predict when it will happen. I was sitting at a restaurant the other day waiting for some friends to arrive and I had a book of poems with me and I started reading it. And because I had the space of time... My friends texted me and said they were running late and it was glorious. So I was reading these poems and I started to write something because I think I had this empty time and I was reading and I had an idea about something or other. And the process of writing is that I write a whole lot of stuff and then later it gets pruned down to considerably less. And then over the course of a very long time, it eventually emerges as a poem or it doesn't. And yeah, so that's, that's more like the process for me.
0: Yeah, it's such a long process, isn't it? We, we just see the, the, the finished product, but you, you know, you're sort of chipping away, you're chipping away, you're chipping away, and it goes on for a long period of time, and then you've just got this very filtered, very fine collection of words somehow in the end that make this poem. Uh, how clear are you about your goal?
2: Not at all clear. I think if you're clear about your goal, it's generally a failure to begin with. When we were talking about having this conversation, we had this conversation about being a fraud, about having imposter syndrome, about talking about poems and do we really know how to talk about poems? Oh God, we probably don't. Um, I think that for most jobs, maybe, um, it doesn't really help to have imposter syndrome. I I make it a general policy to have imposter syndrome about everything and I find that it's not always helpful. Um, But for writing poems, I think... Having a bit of imposter syndrome, if you don't think about the imposter syndrome, if you just know that you don't really know very much, I think it's good, right? I think as soon as you feel like you know, you start pontificating and you start writing something that is rubbish, because who wants to hear someone tell you exactly how the world is? Nobody knows how the world is. I think that there's, there's something to be said in going in knowing nothing at all or being in a kind of state of perpetual doubt.
0: Yeah, which is a, a little bit different to what we often read in social media these days. We have so many experts out there telling us all sorts of things.
1: It's interesting what you said about you know, just social media and this idea of hyper-productivity now. It's incredible how many poets I wrote to. Maybe they're just gently letting me down. But I believe them. Like some really good ones that I admire, just like, God, I haven't written a poem in a year. People that I just assumed were just always at their desk um, producing poetry is really quite a few of them just kind of saying well I'm sure something will happen at some point others like you said Alice use the word happen and I love that idea that poetry happens or what was it Auden said poetry makes nothing
2: happen yeah Yeah, and
1: also poets sometimes make nothing happen as well (laughs) to have that insight into these minds it's like no they're not getting up at five. Well, Alice is getting up at four. Because uh... <laughs> of a new baby, right? The poetry
2: of baby wrangling, yes.
1: But there was something refreshing about that that seems so exterior to this world we live in where you're supposed to be producing and mm. doing this and doing that. Um, you were talking a bit before about the attraction of poetry, Alice and was King... I think I read somewhere Jack Underwood said that it's the closest art form to consciousness because I mean basically you, you don't need many materials you don't need that much time you don't even need a pen and paper if you've got any kind of memory and there is something about that and also just when you read a poem that you're kind of really entering consciousness, not someone's necessarily their thoughts but just consciousness this kind of strange elusive thing that we also don't understand and sometimes what you read in a poem you won't literally understand but it's an insight into a mind and and there's something something often very truthful about the complexity of it where you know these days things are reduced to truths of one kind or another and then in poetry it's so such relief to find people not not reducing things to a kind of
0: idea of truth. sort of surrendering, isn't it, actually? Yeah. Surrendering to something that you don't really know what's going to happen, which direction it will go, and and somehow at the same time honouring that by actually taking it seriously enough to actually write and to complete something, you know. Um, It's a very nice thing. Because everybody's so definite about so many things these days. And
2: yeah, thinking about what you just said about social media and certainty, I mean, there's a quote from the Anglo Irish poet W.B. Yeats where he says that we make of the quarrels with others rhetoric, and we make with the quarrels with ourselves poetry. If I haven't radically misquoted him there, no, right. but yeah. this idea of the quarrels with ourselves. the poetry and and as soon as I mean I think that there's an effort to make social media more open and and to make it less resorting to certainties and resorting Mm -hmm. to rhetoric but you can see that tendency there right that the that primarily we're having these quarrels with others whereas in order to make a poem you need to have a a quarrel with yourself
0: Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. It's it's dissonance, isn't it? It's basically a dissonance that you're, you're trying to work out, so it's not that far from music either, actually.
1: I think for me, the one of the composers, or one of the symphonies I think most is so similar to poetry, something like Sibelius's fourth symphony. You know, quite short movements, and quite strange the way it'll just go in and out of positive or negative, it just... Never, never stable. Um, and these short statements, in a, in a way, some of it reads like contemporary poetry. You know, like a second bassoon, or just hang on too long there, while someone else has started another theme here. And so, in this incredibly kind of sometimes cut up, almost.
2: Well, I'm also I'm interested in these analogies too. I mean, I think they're they're fascinating to to an outsider they're fascinating to hear mm. I mean that's lovely that description of how, how the music might echo the behaviour of a poem because I think it reveals more about the music and it also reveals more about the function of poetry as well
1: It's interesting for me when people describe a poet as being musical and sometimes I worry that what they mean is certain rhythm and alliteration and different things. But for me, a poem is musical when it kind of... Yes, it's using sound, but not necessarily in kind of really obvious way. And also offering different voices any symphony, any piece of chamber music, any concerto relies on themes battling each other in this kind of process and then when a poem doesn't have that element it's definitely unappealing to me and then when you've got, when you get to 20th century, 21st century music it's even more complex with the inclusion of sounds and voices and thematic material and so when I think a poem is musical, actually, for me, that's, that's what I'm thinking of mm. in many ways. A whole
0: symphony and just this small little poem.
1: Yeah, I mean, which in a way, like the sonnet form is, and in a way, there's so many contemporary poems. Are, they're not anything at all like sonnets. But there is still this kind of battle of there's this, but there's this. Ah, there's this, but also there's this you know, and in 14 lines to contain all this. It's slightly like sonata form. Mm-hmm. This is Le Beau Serge. Her hand holds his, until a new angle moves their story forwards, but still the same hand cuts away to music. White, noise, black, nothing, but more action, always jumping, and cutting again, except now, the nothing is quicker.
0: What do you do when you get something like this sent to you? How do you react?
1: I was like, "Oh, oh my God.": <laughs> It's so great. When something like that, which is ambiguous and complex and requires multiple readings, until it almost becomes part of your body in a way, and you're not really sure of any literal understanding of it, but it just sits like music in a way. It's such a privilege. Like when I get kind of excellent poems, I really feel like the luckiest guy. It's like God; no, one, no one else has read this, or very few, and I get to have this in my inbox. It's it's a real it's a real thrill. Yeah. Do you
0: ever have any sort of edit
1: suggestions for your poets? I mean, there are a couple sometimes, just a spelling or comma thing. There was only one poet once where just the syntax. It sounded great and it was beautiful, but the syntax got very unclear and then we had a little bit of talk about how to fix that a bit and he was very open, and, um, but otherwise I wouldn't get involved. I mean, it's really only if there's some little mistake like that.
0: So Alice, let's have a listen to a couple of poems from you now. You've actually brought two with you. Would you like to tell us about the first one?
2: Okay, this is Mark's poem, Mark Leidner's poem, Annoying Parisian Dragonfly. A dragonfly landed on the creme brulee. I swatted at it with the baguette it leapt onto the end of the baguette and there it stayed as i swung the bread at nothing trying to get the dragonfly off and i accidentally knocked the creme brulee off the table and the bowl it was in burst on the floor and the good stuff fell out And I cursed the dragonfly and swung the baguette down so hard that it broke in half on the table. And the dragonfly leapt off the end that broke off to the end of the half I still held in my hand. So I reached down and got the other half that had fallen to the floor by my foot. And the dragonfly instantly leapt off the half I'd just let go of to land on the end of the half I'd picked up. So I overturned the whole table. And that was when the waiter and patrons all looked at me. I was shaking with rage, and that's when the dragonfly landed on my face, at the end of my nose, its wings like fluttering spectacles, and through them I swear I saw Paris, the real Paris, for the first time.
0: Yes, I think we've all been there. (laughs) 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 That sort of situation, yeah?
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Tell us, but you know Mark, and tell us a little bit about Mark the man behind that poem
2: well he likes jokes as may be apparent from this (laughs) poem and on reading this poem I thought oh it might be described as the answer to a question that no one has perhaps ever asked before why not write a slapstick scene in painstaking detail in a very simple language and actually very cumbersome language right which I noticed as I read it I mean you notice when you read it on the page that there's this ridiculous repetition of off and half but when you're reading it it's almost impossible (laughs) to get it out Mm. it's obviously intended to be very difficult to read which is hilarious I thought about this poem a lot and I made all these notes on it And then I also emailed him and said, what was your experience of writing this poem? We've just been talking about the experience of writing a poem. He said, ah, I wrote this poem like a long time ago, like eight or ten years ago. Mm. Uh, But it was just this slapstick of all these French clichés. And I, I just had that scene, and I didn't really know why the poem existed. So it was only quite recently that I then finally came up with that image at the end of the poem of the when the dragonfly landed on my face at the end of my nose its wings like fluttering spectacles and then I knew that I had a poem and then he said Mm. he spent a few days coming up with the last line but that turn took a long time to arrive and then Matt emailed him asking for a poem and he was like I used to think that this was just an ugly, stupid poem, but then I I came to just really, really, really like it. And so I was like, here it is. Um, So I thought that was a nice uh, story of the the poems coming to be, which I think when you're a young poet, you think eight to ten years, impossible. But then when you get a bit older, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of those hanging around, Mm. just sort of not quite poems yet wondering whether they'll ever be poems and most of them never will be but some of them find their way to the transformative moment at the end um which I think makes It's such a great ending
1: poem. all this kind of filmy slapstick stuff and then the idea just so simply just with this um through the the dragonfly's wings suddenly getting this view of Paris you can see it, can't it is, yeah, yeah and he doesn't he doesn't even have to describe it too much it's
2: no, he doesn't describe it at all. That's, yeah. that's how you know it's the real Paris.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it,
2: I love the ending the way that it's, it's, I saw Paris, the real Paris for the first time, because again, it's it's another cliche, right? The idea of the real Paris, but it's a cliche, but it's also a joke about the cliche. And then it's also overriding the cliche. It's not even described. You feel as though you're seeing the real Paris, which yeah. is, uh, well, quite quite extraordinary.
0: Alice, you've also brought your poem, The Picnic, with you. Let's have a listen to that.
2: Yeah, The Picnic. All right. It's much more shameful when you've written it yourself. It's it's much better to read other people's poems. Okay. The picnic outside the window with select guests carries on long after the sun goes down. It carries into night, bleeds into morning, and trickles through days. One long with a sunset and crowds, another brief and pained. The picnic outside the window began on the first day of spring, so warm it was more like summer. In a city in Germany, we were all borrowing, and a woman said there was an ice cream truck parked at the back of the clock tower. And around that time, many brides showed up to walk up the castle steps and be photographed on that day of days. And although the brides would usually irritate us, at that stage nothing was irritating – Everything irradiated, even after the sun had gone, sunk, burned out, the planet ruined. The echo of laughter continued as we became mothers and grandmothers and great-great ancestors after the deathless apparatus was invented so we could look on as our children's children's children told jokes under glass and people laughed with age-old desperation at the residual ruins from the quieter now but still ongoing picnic outside the window
0: great. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Take a breath and tell us about it.
2: Uh, yes. I think most
0: of us, I mean, I, I'm really quite transported when I'm listening to you. I know exactly what you're, what you're well, I, I'm assuming I know.
2: <laughs> yeah, you probably know better than I do. I think that's what's so interesting is that you read it and then you think yeah, yeah, yeah. what? Yeah, I mean, I, I this poem is about the relationship between the momentary and the the deathless or the eternal, I think. Um, and it's also about two kinds of time that we live in now, one of which is the hurtling towards apocalypse and the other one which is the, ah, the kind of, here we are, doing what we always do, mm. on we go. Um, I think it's something that poetry is very good at, blurring different experiences of time. I think you were saying something similar to, about mm. this earlier, Matt, this... Yeah, so, I mean, we don't experience time as minute by minute or as boxes on the calendar, really. Uh, But I think that poetry and music can encourage us to think about it and experience Mm. it in different ways. So I think that's definitely what this poem is trying to do. I love it when
1: it turns to, as we became mothers and grandmothers and great, great ancestors after the deathless. It's so great. Suddenly you're in this other zone, of time. It's so deftly done out of it.
2: It's such a wonderful thing that poetry can do, right? Yeah. Suddenly you can just, and you can change the tone completely as well. Like I think that this poem is sort of, for the first half, it's located in a relatively ordinary time. And then as soon as there's this uh, especially long line and there's this repetition of irritating, and then there's this word irradiated, which is actually a wonderful word because it means both make radiant mm. and also be exposed to radiation. So mm. it's kind of the beauty and the terror at once. It's quite wonderful. So, and then there's this sort of flip where, yeah, the sun had just gone, sunk, burned out, and then, yeah, time can go at an immense speed. Yeah.
1: Well, speaking of time, I, remember I wrote to you about, because um, the picnic, it reminds me of a, a poem by Eichendorf. Used in Schumann's song, oh, right. Auf einer Burg. There are so many similarities. Also, this distance that you're just watching this specific thing. So, I read that little one, little translation. Yeah, that great. Yes. I mean, this is a translation I just found by Richard Stokes. It's in a castle. Up there at his lookout, the old knight has fallen asleep. Rainstorms pass overhead, and the wood stirs through the portcullis. Beard and hair matted together rough and breast turned to stone for centuries he sat up there in his silent cell outside it's quiet and peaceful all have gone down to the valley forest birds sing lonely songs in the empty window arches down there on the sunlit rhine a wedding party is sailing by musicians strike up merrily and the lovely bride weeps oh, It's such a beautiful song that he's been sitting up there for centuries, slightly timeless. There are brides, there are lots of lots of little things. I mean, I know it's not based on it, but I was still so blown away to read that. And to think, and I love it when you know something is reaching back somewhere else in a way.
2: Absolutely, and so much hinges on the ending there where the bride weeps. I mean, because of all the thoughts that we have about what it should be to be a bride and the idea of the crying bride its sort of echoing the the action of the poem which is, it's sort of like oh, should the unfolding of time should that be a happy thing or should that be, is it actually an incredibly sad thing or is it both, right? Mm. Yeah.
0: And it's nice to find a a lead with with nice lyric that aren't sort of contrived because we've talked about this before that quite often the the type of lyric that's used and the the choice of poem that's used is, is. Is, is inferior, isn't
1: it? You know, But that, in that particular case, it's not. <laughs> but also Schumann's um, treatment of it is incredible. I mean, I don't have the... Oh, no, the German... Because I could do these things like where the interval goes up when the word implies looking down. Or, you know, um, what is it? What in English? For centuries, he sat up there. But I think in the song, I think the, the interval, it's a big interval down... Um down there on the sunlit Rhine, in the in the song this is Da Unten. And these beautiful little treatments, you know, where anyone else would want to paint the word as unten. Yeah, he goes it's beautiful.
0: very interesting matt to come back to music and and poetry of course and you being the musician that you are are always busy with interpretation and of course when you sit down to write your poems you are actually creating from scratch what do you learn from those two processes do they come together very often
1: i think what's similar is that they're both kind of messy organic processes i mean the way i practice now is is very different than maybe 20 years ago kind of i take more time i like to start learning things earlier so that i don't have to work too hard every single day and also not i used to think i'll attack this phrase today i'm going to nail this phrase if i have to spend six hours i'll do it now i'll do it for 10 minutes and think oh be right eventually you know just believing in just just time that that it will kind of do that work and you know I mean poetry no one has to read my poems, so there's no pressure there um, for me to but I do like to edit my own poems that is that's kind of the fun part because it's so amazing just to have anything at all because I don't write that often I have to wait for these little bursts. You know, and I for ages I thought inspiration was, was not the right thing. But actually, maybe it's not inspiration, maybe it's the right time. Maybe your friend turned up late and you've read three lines of something else and suddenly you've got 20 minutes and something happens. Maybe, maybe it is more just having dead time than... Um, but practice I have to be very disciplined about, and make sure I do it, you know, whereas... Yeah, poetry, there's no, there's no pressure. Usually what I do is kind of just collect things for a while and then trust that there must be some reason I, that appealed to me, not really understand why, and then see if it has any friends with the other, anything in common with the other things I collected and then kind of see what happens. Yeah.
2: Is there a relationship between music and words for you, or playing and words for you? Are poetry and music completely separate? Or would you listen to something and think of text? Or how, how do you connect those two things? Well,
1: actually, I always, I always think of text when I practice or approach a phrase. Oh. Um, not only for you know, the kind of just syntax of the melody, where it might naturally have a break or or go up, but for articulation as well. And I talk a lot with my students just about kind of just imagine it as language. You would, you know, if you, as soon as you, particularly if you have know, a German piece, you know, if there are kind of three upbeats, dum, bom bom bom, something like that, and to treat them all the same way, I always say, as I say in the same word, three times which you don't do you know you say ich gehe zum Arzt for instance and then you've you've instantly got like instantly there's a a connection and also for the students and myself it instantly makes kind of sense why there should be these tiny differences in articulation and also where you would emphasize where you where you place the emphasis so that all the time and sometimes I get even grander for some pieces I've imagined whole narratives or as stories or as operas sometimes it's as specific as words sometimes it's just a story but I, I think I've, because I came to bass music so late I started bass when I was 15 mm. and until then really I was only interested in poetry really I was so cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then, and so I kind of, it just became this habit of always thinking about music in, in words, in terms of words very often. I don't like to reduce things. I also like the pure experience of just sound. Like I'm not trying to find a programmatic meaning for everything. And then certainly when I listen to performers, one thing I'm annoyed by, if there isn't that element of speech... You know, when you hear three even notes with no direction, then it doesn't feel at all related to language. And also, like, in my head at least, I mean, a lot happens in my head that would never be audible. But, you know, just like these things of, um, that Schumann does in those songs, to do that without words. Last year, I played this concerto by Gerald Barry, an Irish composer, and it was incredible. It was really great, but he'd sent me this music and I didn't know what it was for ages. There were really no dynamic markings, no real phrasing, and, and quite a lot of repeated notes. And then I went to visit him in, in Dublin. I mean, we worked so hard on bringing out the text, like to the, almost to the point of this is a consonant, this is a, a vowel matching that with the bow strokes and then also trying for this kind of duplicity of feeling where she might be singing something macabre but making it beautiful or the other way around to produce a kind of sense of irony again this is all probably just in my head but it's, it was the thought process. And this particular piece, which for me was a dream because it was exactly what I like to do try and do words on a bass.
0: Listening to Tall Poppies, the podcast with my guests Matthew McDonald and Alice Miller. If you enjoy these podcasts, you might like to consider sponsoring the Tall Poppies Project. By doing so, you allow me to continue my research, interviewing, producing, and maintaining this living archive. To do so, drop by the show's Patreon page. That's Patreon.com/backslash Tall Talk patreon.com backslash tall talk or simply visit the tall poppies homepage to find out more. Did you two meet through the Berlin Lit project? Yeah. Oh, I yes. Yes. Right. We did. So, Matt, maybe you can tell us because, of course, many of Alice's poems feature in the first edition of this particular project of yours. It's an online magazine, comes out four times a year, and it features poetry.
1: Yeah, so when I started it, I thought, I'll just try my luck and ask a couple poets I really like. And one of them is a poet I really love is Mark Leidner. So I asked him and I couldn't believe it. He wrote back and said, yes, I'll, I'll give you some poems. I just, I couldn't believe it. Then he wrote, by the way, another fantastic poet in Berlin is Alice Miller. Maybe you should write to her. And then I checked out Alice's poetry wherever I could online and was blown away by it. It's so good, beautiful, funny. And then I wrote to Alice and then Alice said yes. And then I was blown away again. And, yeah, that's that's how it started. That's how I met Alice.
0: Well, of course, Alice, you are already quite a published poet, aren't you? You've three collections of poetry you've written and a novel. To then discover that somebody in Berlin was starting a collection of poems, obviously there are a lot of people out there keen to read poetry.
2: Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, I'm I'm so excited by also this, this intersection, this conversation between music and poetry. I think that's something really interesting about what Matt is doing um, this kind of cross-pollination of the, the worlds and the way in which you've been interested in poetry from the start, but you have this very distinguished musical career and you're kind of exploring doing both at the same time, which is amazing.
0: Indeed, it is. It is a wonderful project. How did you go about assembling this sort of incredible variety? It's quite diverse, the variety of poets that you've chosen, Matt.
1: It's hard because you know I've got my own kind of tastes, like everyone does but also trying to balance that so that it just doesn't become that it's only my taste but trying to balance it with more formal funny experimental as long as something interesting is happening I don't really have any rules as long as it kind of well it ultimately appeals to me in some way yeah
2: what's the process like of putting it together
1: It's really interesting how these themes emerge And these little kind of narrative you can force on it I'm sure no one has read it from beginning to end But I have in there my own kind of reasonings For why this poet or why this poem follows that Like for instance in the first one We've got a lot about language And the unreliability of language And then that might flow into something else And there might just be a word in one Or an image in one that relates to something else trying to find ways to unify them together, like as you would your own collection.
0: Sounds like a big poem itself, actually. That's kind of my idea. (laughs) What have been the sort of surprises in some of the poems that have been sent?
1: There's one by Stuart Sanderson. There's so much in it, and it's so beautiful, and also its kind of hidden formality, these tercets with the A, B, B which you you don't really even hear when you read it out loud, so it's not a rhyme scheme which is pounded into your eardrums. It's it's quite subtle. It's called The Camel. Facing westwards, The Camel, if indeed it is a camel, watches the cars as they hurtle by beyond the vallum. A millennium, at least it has been, waiting in the rain out here as fresh worlds appear before it chiselled on this cross by an artist who might have noticed its like on a long journey to the Bible lands, a sight which his hands remembered, or more likely extrapolated, from an image he'd happened upon one day in a manuscript, which image then slipped onto this sandstone pillar, abstracted slightly as the rich must be, perhaps, to enter heaven. A camel which could unravel a flood of interlacing knotwork, to spool like a sigh, through some needle's eye. I like it.
2: I like, the, I like the rhyme a lot, which is, it's not too much, and the, the vellum, a millennium. And I also like the, the humor that enters into it, the, the camel, if indeed it is a camel, yeah. and abstracted slightly, as the rich must be. I think there's a bit of humor entering in here, which I enjoy. Yes.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm always looking for a little bit of humour and not punchlines. Of
0: course, one of my questions was going to be, you know, Berlin Lit actually doesn't contain any of your poems.
1: No. no. And so
0: it really is a project that's all about the work of other people. Yeah. yeah. Do you learn a lot from that?
1: Yeah, I learn I a lot from it. I mean, so much I almost feel guilty for doing it because I think I get so much out of it myself. Absolutely, seeing what so many fantastic poets do how they work, but also reading through submissions because I get somewhere between 600, 900 submissions okay. to go through. And I do that by myself. Reminds me of kind of watching auditions in the orchestra in a way or for the music school. Okay, it doesn't have to blow you away straight away, but there's a feeling of if it's right. And sometimes that feeling is quite early on. And sometimes I can misjudge things and think... Oh, I didn't like that at the beginning, but actually, gosh, look where it went. I nearly underestimated that one. But this was one I didn't understand in the first couple of reads and probably still don't really understand. There's something about the way she uses language and the balance of sentence lengths and tone. Miruna Fuginu. It's called Test Number 61. Uh, She lives in London, I think. Do not worry. It is only the casual fear that makes me test our love in small, maritime ways. Lately, I have done this by picturing your kidney, locked in a jar, happy and numb like a potted plant. I have inquired after my feelings for it, if I adore it in its isolation, and if it adores me too. It's really late capitalism, and all my lucid thoughts are medical. At 3am, the skies are petrol. Then there's me dreaming of dissection games, crazy for overly dramatic music, chutneys, plum compote. This is all that we are left with, old things, older bodies, reassembled. I'm just here doing the least, non-stop testing like the times when I picture my finger nudging your kidney tenderly, seeing if it will bob back to me in its liquid. My mouth turns St. Petersburg blue with minor anticipation, Oh, jellyfish, formaldehyde, love.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. That's amazing. I mean, what do you do when you get something like that in the mail? I mean, you know, you, how did you? How do you sort of live with it? Do you-
1: the thing is, I, I what I loved this straight away. I just love. It is only the casual fear that makes me test our love in small maritime ways, and just, just straight away somewhere completely unexpected. They they often come like that. I just have no idea for a little while what's going on, but there will be these turns in the language and tone. I also am a sucker for anything that where vernacular, zeitgeisty stuff is somehow in there. It doesn't have to be, but I find myself a little bit weak for it. A line like, It's really late capitalism. <laughs> That's
2: my favorite line. <laughs> it's really late capitalism. Yes. <laughs>
1: You know, like, taking this kind of late capitalism, but, like, it's really late. It's not,
2: it's a, yeah, it's about time someone said it, isn't it? When you're kind of like, it's late capitalism. Like, it's really... It's
1: probably time to get an Uber, you know. Yeah, I mean, there are, there's... I don't know, there's... some Obviously, I, I like all of them.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's such a mammoth task.
1: What did you say? Between
0: 600 900 yeah. submissions. Mm. And how do people hear about you?
1: I... Mostly kind of publicise it on Twitter and then it goes to, it'll be picked up by different places that offer publishing info like Duotrope and maybe universities or other kind of, you know, kind of publications about creative writing or publishing kind of spreads around. And
0: Alice, have you just sort of discovered anything with you? You said you've had the first chance to sort of actually start to write some poetry again recently. How's the world sort of influencing you at the moment? Your, your well-being, of course, with a new baby, but also all of these world events, these things that have been happening the last years, like the pandemic and like the, the war going on in a neighbouring country and, and living in Europe and being so close to all of that and all the, the environmental issues, all these things that we hear constantly every day. How does that affect you as a poet?
2: Yeah, it's a good question and it's very difficult to grapple with. I still haven't found the answer to that at all. Um, But it's certainly all in my mind. And also the juxtaposition is quite strange between the climate emergency and the war and then this experience of being home with a baby, which is also a whole new sense of time. And someone was saying the other day that it was boring, but that doesn't capture it. It is it is an, a new way of experiencing time. And I think the other thing is that I'm very aware that uh, the hero of the story is not the, the person who is experiencing this kind of time, and that um, this is not an idea of heroism, being a baby or being a carer for a baby. There's an outside-of-the-world quality, which I think is also related to the reaction to the climate emergency and the war i think also it's it's funny being in berlin because my grandmother was a german jew so she left here when she was 16 and now we have another war very nearby and so there's sort of these feelings again of she had to get as far away from europe as possible for her well-being i mean she actually she went to london for a while but then she ended up in Norfolk Island, of all glamorous and yeah. exciting places. So there's, there's the there's the there's the, there's the Australia link for you. Yeah. yeah, thinking about these events, they're all on my mind. I don't know. Um, I don't know how the poems might reflect them.
0: Matt, are there some styles, and can you see a sort of a pattern of things that that are emerging from
1: how people are writing at the moment? I do see a lot of things suddenly there'll be lots of the same word or the same idea. Also, the kind of choices of topics, that can be quite uniform. I mean, there are many, I mean, not just the traditional kind of, you know, love poems and all that, which are great, but there'll be certain ideas, certain perspectives, which I'll read a lot of. I don't know if it's new or not, but they're certainly there. So I guess what I'm really looking for is an individual voice. So you do see styles, but, you know, like Mark, Mark Leidner's poem, I don't think a student, someone starting out studying poetry would dare to write a poem like that necessarily. Mark has such a, a strong individual style, and it's so wonderful. And so there's people that kind of break out of trends, but I do see a lot of things. Alice, you are
0: in the process of writing your next book.
2: Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I'm actually writing a novel and the poetry book is not a poetry book yet. It's at that lovely stage where it's a folder on my computer with a name, which definitely is not going to be the name of any book, but it's just kind of a name that I've become attached to in a kind of loose way. And the folder is filled with documents of a kind of strange quality. And I haven't sent any of them out. I haven't sent anything out probably for about two years or something. So it's lovely. It's kind of in this wonderful place where anything is possible. And as soon as you make it into a book, it becomes this reduced thing which is a bit terrifying and kind of I feel kind of shame and all of these things so the poetry book is still in an early blissful stage.
0: Well of course we're here in Berlin what sort of an influence does this other language German have on your work and your poetry?
2: I find it slipping into my consciousness far more than I find it slipping into my poetry. Okay. What about you?
1: I occasionally will write something and think, God, that sounds so wordy and and wrong. If if I could just use this word as I would in German, it, it would be perfect. Like not in German, mm-hmm. but just if I could just make this sentence, but it wouldn't make sense anymore. But just for the sound, I can't think of what the example was. But it was probably some verb thing. If I could just end with that.
0: Now, Alice, sadly we're coming to the end of our time but before we go, perhaps Matt you can tell us a little bit about the resonance you've received after publishing
1: Berlin Lit So far, really good and what I have loved is that a lot of musicians read it well, the ones I know people from my orchestra, a few of them have read it through and they'll just say, I really like that one, I really like that one and and then a lot of bass players reading it which is so cool I, I love that like, there are all these bass players I meet these bass there was one he's a Colombian guy and I see him at the philharmonie after I've done a concert and he'll be backstage and say you know that poem you published I really liked that one I th- and for me that's was like, oh, so it's, great yeah. my work here is done yeah. you know when you've got bass players telling you about a, a poem they liked on the website and for me that's just it's perfect mm-hmm.
0: Alice Miller and Matthew McDonald speaking to me there. And all the poems that you heard today on Tall to Poppies, the podcast, can be found on the Berlin Lit homepage. That's Berlin Lit, written together, berlinlit.com. To read more of Alice Miller's work, you can visit her website, alicemillerauthor.com. Alice Miller Author is written as one word. And as always, you will find all of these links on the tool-poppies.com page. Remember, if you enjoy these podcasts, please share them via social media or emailing. Don't forget to visit the Tool Poppies website for more podcasts featuring various Australian luminaries, including composer Lisa Lim, opera director Barry Kosky, and author Gail Jones. Once again, special thanks to the podcast sponsors. Your financial contributions make it possible for this project to continue. For those of you who might be considering sponsoring the podcast, thereby allowing me to continue my research, interviewing, producing and maintaining this living archive, do drop by the Tool Poppies website, tool-poppies.com. There you'll find a direct link to the Patreon page, which makes donating to this project easy. patreon.com backslash Tool Poppies Talk. It's always great to hear from listeners, so do drop me an email at info at tool-poppies.com. But until next time, this is Brendan O'Shea saying goodbye from Berlin.